0: Let's pray. God, you tell us in your word that it is far better for us to draw near and listen than it is to come and speak. And so, as the one who's going to be speaking for the next several minutes, I am. Very much aware that you say it's just better to be quiet. And so, God, as we as we come and we approach this time, God, we pray that it that it would be you through your word that is speaking. And that the words that we sung a few minutes ago, here's my heart, Lord, here's my life, Lord, speak what is true. Would not just be some really neat phrases that gets uttered in a song, but becomes the very things that we're hungry for. And the very things that we're thirsty for. and So God, if there's no thirst, I pray that you'd create thirst this morning. And where there is, may you satisfy that with your word and by your word. God, this morning we pray for a glimpse of who you are. We thank you for how you were revealed to us things about yourself that we want us to know about you. But, Lord, we pray for ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that are willing to go and obey. And we thank you for Christ who is the balance this morning to the holy terror that Solomon points to you as. And we pray this all in his good name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. And as I mentioned, uh, the, really the first verse and all of the chorus of the song the band just played for us comes directly from this text that Solomon penned um, however many thousands of years ago that he penned it. And just to be real honest, if you, if you leave here this morning... Feeling like the ante has been upped in your relationship with God or your understanding of who God is then then I would say that you 've probably heard Solomon well that you 've probably heard him correctly. So if you and I leave here this morning with, with an understanding or perhaps an attitude that's, that's a little bit more of, holy smokes, what exactly am I doing when I sit down to pray for my noontime meal this afternoon? We've heard correctly. If, if we, in, in even the next 35, 40 minutes, if we're able to step back and we're able to go, oh my goodness, and, and comprehend a bit of the reality of what actually we believe the scriptures say will take place in those 35, 40 minutes, then, then we've heard well and we've heard correctly. And Solomon doesn't pull any punches. He's been walking us through week in and week out this idea of how all areas of life are opportunities for worship. And now he just turns the lens and the focus onto the house of worship. And he does so to give his people... And obviously us, by extension, as we have followed and are studying what he has written underneath the inspiration of God himself, he wants us to understand, I think very clearly, two specific things. One of them is this, the godness of God is not to be trifled with. Solomon wants us to understand the godness of God is not to be trifled with. If that sounds intense, again, I think we're hearing well. I think we're hearing correctly. And if the word godness seems like a new word for you, it is. Because we're going to just make up a word this morning to try and describe what Solomon is trying to articulate to us, but the first big idea is that the godness of God is not to be trifled with. And that that's this idea that there is there's something so other to God, something so holy to who he is, so all consuming in its perfection and in his righteousness, that, that we should come very, very carefully into his presence. Solomon's going to tell us and going to lead off his instructions for us with the verb guard. Some of your translations may say watch. It's this idea of, you know what, you better be careful as you come into the presence of the king. Because there's a godness to this God that is not to be trifled with. Some of you may recall and, and, and be able to recall to mind um, Esther when she was preparing to plead on behalf of her people, she had to wait for um, King Arthur, King the King to extend his scepter to her, and if he didn't, it meant that her presence was not accepted, and her life would end. And she was willing to go into the presence of the king, knowing that was a reality because of what she understood God was calling her to do on behalf of her people. And the idea is similar. There is a godness of God that is not to be trifled with. Now, the, the balance to this is that there's a graciousness of God that allows him to be accessed. There's a godness to God, the godness of God is not to be trifled with, but the graciousness of God allows him to be accessed. Now let's just trace access through the scriptures real briefly and and this is not in our text but we have to balance our text with these other biblical realities. Adam and Eve, before they were even called Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, before the fall, enjoyed an access with God that was unstained by sin. No one else in human history has ever enjoyed a relationship with God in the way Adam and Eve did. Not even the disciples. The disciples, yes, they walked with God in flesh, they walked with Jesus, they watched him perform the miraculous, but Jesus had laid aside some of his his divinity, he had taken on humanity, and they themselves were still sinful. Adam and Eve at this point in Genesis 1 and 2 were sinless, and they did not walk with God in flesh, they walked with God in his godness. In the cool of the day, we're told, there was an unstained, unrestrained access to God that Adam and Eve had, that one day we will have, that is proclaimed as our future hope. That's where we're going, Revelation 21 and 22, where God himself will sit on the throne and there will be no more death, sickness, sin, and we will just, we will see his glory in all of what it is. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us there's not even going to be a moon and a sun anymore because those greater lights and lesser lights that the Lord made, they're not going to be needed because He's the light. It's just a, it's an amazing idea to just consider the fact that in many ways everything we know about the world the Lord has created is going to be recreated and is going to look different in ways that we have never thought about or seen that's proclaimed as our future hope. So that's where we're going. But then jump into where Solomon would have been writing this. He built the temple. Before he built the temple, there was what was called the tabernacle. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, perhaps reading chronologically through your Bible this year, you have probably got through Exodus and Leviticus here recently and all of the instructions about the building of the tabernacle and the priests and what they're to do and what they're supposed to wear and how many animals and how much grain and how much wine and how much bread and all of these rules that were placed in and around all of what took place in what we would refer to as the sacrificial system. And that was God allowing himself to be accessed but restraining his access by a veil and a veil that separated the holy of holies from the most holy place only one person once a year and only by blood sacrifice was able to come into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant would be and to make atonement on behalf of the people access in the tabernacle and temple we could perhaps use the words Old Covenant access, Old Testament access, was restrained by the curtain. New Covenant access, access that you and I enjoy as New Covenant Christians, has been obtained by Christ. We're told that Christ went into the Holy of Holies, not the physical location in the physical temple, but the spiritual heavenly location. And he made once and for all atonement for all of sin. And he satisfied the holy wrath of God. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father after his work was completely done because there's no more work left to do. And Jesus has obtained access for us to God and so the new testament can tell us very boldly tell us draw near come into and have access to God and you and I are able to have an access to God that is unlike anything the old testament believer or worshiper had because of who Christ is and what he has done so we have to understand that the that the the, the godness of God is not to be trifled with And the graciousness of God allows him to be accessed. Because what Solomon is going to articulate is all about how you and I come and enjoy access. And how we're to come with certain attitudes in our approach to God. And how we're to approach Him. And how we're to watch our steps as we come. But lest we think that God is just simply waiting for us to screw up, to smite us with lightning bolts. His graciousness has allowed us to access him through Christ, who has fully satisfied all things on our behalf as believers. And so what Solomon has to say is absolutely true. but We have to balance it against what and who Jesus is. So let's go to verse 1. Let's think about this first part in the idea of the godness of God is not to be trifled with. Solomon says this in verse 1. Guard your steps. Verses 1 to 3, there is a central verb of command that has these verses pulled together into what amounts to be a unit. That word, that verb is guard. Guard your steps. Watch your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So Solomon tells us to guard our steps. And verses 1 to 3 amount to be him articulating that we can, if we're not careful, have a failure to understand who God is. That there can be a failure on our part to understand who God is and then understand that the godness of God is not to be trifled with. And that leads him to lead off these verses with a very declarative, explicit command watch your steps, guard your steps. To draw near is better than to offer the sacrifice of God fools. Now, what is the sacrifice of fools? I mean, it could be a whole host of things. I think in maybe its simplest way to summarize the sacrifice of fools was in part whatever happened or was given that ignores the holiness of God. And secondly, takes for granted the graciousness of God. So the sacrifice of fools I would define for you as the ignoring of the holiness of God. And the taking for granted the graciousness of God. So to try to illustrate that for you, let's think back to where we were at Christmas time. And I'm always trying to maybe connect some dots back and forth between series for you. So that we can kind of return to where we've been and maybe pull some big ideas together. Because I know you remember every word that I say whenever I say it. So um, it's probably just redundant for you, right? All right, but... Here in Micah, the leaders had failed terribly. Big time. And the whole book crescendos to this question posed in 6a. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to come and are we supposed to bring a thousand rams of burnt offering before you? Are we supposed to sacrifice our children before you? And the Lord answers that question by saying this. No, you love justice. You do justice. You love mercy. That word mercy can also be translated steadfast love. You walk humbly with your God. So the people of Israel, the leaders, at this point are kind of sitting under the, the chastisement of God and they're, they're going, okay, we get it. What do we do? You want a thousand, you want a thousand sheep? Should we bring our children? How do we come then before you? What will you accept? And the Lord says, no, you do justice. I think that expresses expresses what their vertical relationship with God was to look like. To do justice, to have justice, was to obey the law. You love mercy. You love steadfast love. That's a neighborly love. Remember, we're told in Micah 3.1, the leaders inverted justice. They perverted it. They began calling what was right, wrong, and what was wrong, right. But they allowed people to be robbed of their land. They allowed widows and and, and orphaned children to lose their only means of providing for themselves through courts and the justice, quote-unquote, system. And so the Lord says, now you you actually love mercy. You steadfastly love one another. and You can see a horizontal explanation of how they're to come before God. And then you just be, be humble. Walk humbly. We're told that these leaders leaned on the graciousness of the Lord. So the sacrifice of fools is the ignoring of the holiness of God. It's the, it's the, it's the conclusion that says, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what I do. And that's what we see happening with these leaders in Micah's day. And it doesn't really matter that you took a piece of property from a widow. It doesn't matter that you left an orphan child without any way to provide for themselves. We're going to get a judge or we're going to have somebody in the courts give you the legal authority and approval for what you did and then we're good. And We're just going to lean upon the Lord because he's, he's not going to think that's that big of a deal. And there's an ignoring of the holiness of God. And then there's the taking for granted the graciousness of God. And to these people, God just says, I want you to obey my word, I want you to love others, and I want you to be humble. Solomon's telling us that it's better to just be quiet than to offer the sacrifice of fools. But notice what he says about the fools. Go back to verse 1 and the tail end of verse 1. The fool doesn't even know he's doing evil. The fool thinks that what he's doing is correct. But the fool has ignored the holiness of God. He's taking for granted the graciousness of God. He's not guarding his steps. And he's coming in with this idea that, you know what, God's good with anything and everything that I do. And that's part of why I think this passage summarizes into this phrase that there's a godness to God that is not to be trifled with. There's a godness to God that is not to be trifled with. Well, in regards to arrogant and humble and proud and haughty, the Bible has a ton of things to say about that, and you could probably even see within the sacrifice of fools who don't even know they're doing evil, an idea that they're, they're, they're proud and they're unwilling to be humble. And let's just think through real briefly what the Bible says about proud people and humble people. In Psalm 138, for though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Proverbs 3, towards the scorner, He is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Jesus in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Maybe even more explicitly, Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Mary in her Magnificat in Luke 1 says that He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, And has exalted the humble estate. You have in Luke 18, and I'm not going to read that, I'm just going to summarize for you. Jesus telling the story of two different people. One was a Pharisee who walked into the temple of God and basically prayed a prayer that amounted to this. God, aren't you so glad that I'm here praying to you right now? And then there was another man who was a tax collector, the most despised person in all of their culture and society that stood from afar, beat his breast, and just said, Be merciful to me, God. I am a sinner. And Jesus says the tax collector went away justified. James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Peter essentially requotes that, and you can see the idea right there expressed on the very bottom line. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, there's this idea in the Bible that the sacrifice of fools is one that ignores the holiness of God and takes for granted the graciousness of God. One of the most terrifying scenes in all of the New Testament happened in Acts chapter 5. We're told twice that it was terrifying, two different times. We are told by Luke that great fear came upon the church. They were shaken in their boots because they understood in that moment that the godness of God is not to be trifled with. And what happened in that moment is that all the believers at this point in the very early New Testament church were selling all of their possessions. They brought all of the money from that, laid it down at the feet of the apostles, and they said, you give it to whoever needs it so that there is a flatness of equity amongst all of us so that nobody has more and nobody has less. And we're told that nobody had need. Well, Ananias and Sapphire get in there, and they think it's kind of a cool thing to be a part of, and so they sell some land. And they decide to keep back some of the proceeds of their sale. Now, the issue was not that they retained some of the proceeds. The issue was that they brought the sum that they brought and communicated, this is all we have. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, you've lied to God. And Ananias hears these words and he falls down dead. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Luke says, great fear seized to the church. Now, Sapphira, three hours later, comes waltzing in. Who knows what she was doing for those three hours? She comes waltzing in. And the question is, is this what you sold the property for? And she just says, yeah, that's the price. And Peter says, the men who carried your husband away, they're coming to carry you away. And she falls down dead. And again, we're told great fear seized the church. There's a godness to God that's not to be trifled with. And that's just not the Old Testament God. And that was post-Jesus post-cross, post-burial, post-resurrection, New Testament church. There's a godness to God that is not to be trifled with. And that's what Solomon's telling us, that we're, we're to guard our steps. And this is that central command of verses 1 to 3, that we're to be careful. Because he's an all-consuming fire. He, he, he will. Because of His holiness, uphold His righteousness and His justice. But Let's also not forget that there is a graciousness to God that allows Him to be accessed. And you and I are told time and time again to confidently and boldly come into His presence and to access Him because of what Jesus Christ has done. So let's not offer the sacrifice of fools and let's not ignore the holiness of God. But let's also not take for granted the graciousness of God and the cost at which His grace came. So how do we guard our steps? That's a tremendous question. Here's some ways that I think we can summarize verses 1 to 3 that might be helpful and practical. That we come into God's presence. That when you, when you sit down to pray for your meal this afternoon. When you, when you have time at bedtime with your kids and you pray whatever that looks like for your family, that you come humble, not proud. I mean, if you just stop and think for just a minute about what even the act of praying is, you know, let's, just, let's just say what it is, that you in this moment are going to talk to the creator of everything. Really? Really? That should should make all of us tremble a little bit. We, We probably are a little bit more nervous in anticipation of meeting some really famous people than we necessarily are when we sit down to pray. The creator of the universe? The creator of all known things? The uncaused cause? The uncreated being? With the one who I can't even get my mind to wrap around how he existed before anything else existed because everything else that existed is because he said, let there be? That that guy? I'm going to now talk to him. There should be some shaking in those boots. We come humbly, not proud. We come honestly, not flippant. Are you spending time pre-meal prayers, just saying the same thing so you can check a box to feel better about yourself having prayed before a meal? If that's the case, those prayers may be teetering on the flippant side. Do you open your Bible every morning and, and read so that you can check the box that I've read? It's probably teetering on the flippant side. Are you somehow trying to to do certain things? Did you give money this morning? Are you even here this morning because you think that's going to allow God or force His hand in some way to answer some prayer or provide for something in, in whatever? That's flippant, not honest. And He is a good gift giver, and so we do come expectantly We do not come presumptuously, and here's the difference between the two of those. The expectant person comes and says, I'm ready to receive what you have to give. The presumptuous person says, I'm ready to get what you owe me. We come expectantly, not presumptuously. We come fearful, but without fear. Because time and time again, those who have an understanding of God and who he is, those who understand that he's not to be trifled with, those who have been given a glimpse of who he is and realize that, that, yeah, he's not to be messed with, are told, fear not. Solomon, at the very end of verse 7, the third verb in our passage this morning, is going to tell us that we should fear the Lord. That as we begin to understand who He is and have a fear of Him that He is not to be trifled with, then we at the very same time understand that His graciousness allows Him to be accessed by and through the person of Jesus Christ. So we are fearful yet without fear, which leads us to then enter into His presence and draw near to the throne of grace confidently in the blood of Jesus by the blood of Jesus, not cavalier. So there should be tremendous pause for us. Because there's a godness to God that is not to be trifled with. And there's a graciousness of God that allows us to access Him. Well, Solomon then continues in verses 4 to 7, I think we can summarize maybe helpfully with what's on the screen. The godness of God is not to be trifled with, and our promises to God are not to be left unfulfilled. Let's go to verse 4, and let's look at what he has to say to us next. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools, Pay what you vow. Now, let's just pause there because I want us to just very briefly think through who Solomon has now said the fool is. Three different times in four verses, he has used the word fools. That should be something we pay attention to because he's describing to us who the foolish people are. If we want to be wise people, then we should pay attention to who the fool is and just Be the other. So let's summarize what the fool is. The fool doesn't draw near to listen. The fool talks a lot. And the fools are those who don't pay what they vow to God. So the wise person then is the person that draws near to listen. The wise person is going to be the person that says, you know what, if God has has said things and he's revealed things, then there's really probably nothing better than for me to understand what he has said and understand what he has revealed. And so I'm just going to draw near and listen. When I have questions and I don't understand things, I'm going to chase down those answers because I want to hear from him and I want to understand what he has said. And the fool's not going to talk a lot. They're not going to come with lots of language and lots of verbiage. It's in some ways what Jesus said in Matthew 6 when he was indicating that um, the, the hypocrites when they pray do so with a lot of phrases and they're trying to get people's attention so that people stand back and go, holy cow, they know how to pray. They're using four and five syllable words. They must be really awesome people. And Jesus is like, no, you don't need to worry about that. You just need to pray real silently, real honestly. He even goes as far to say, you just pray silence. Go go and hide yourself. If you're tempted to pray for show, just get away from everybody in a prayer closet and just pray. And just have a conversation with God. But the fool's going to talk a lot. And the fools are those who don't pay what they vow to God. Well then back to verse 5, Solomon continues, It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. So in the Old Testament, vows were not required. They were optional. Nobody was obligated to a vow. Vows were optional. Oaths were optional. So Solomon is telling you here, it's better that you just not enter into a vow than enter into a vow and not fulfill it. Because the godness of God is not to be trifled with. And our promises to God are not to be left unfulfilled. He continues in verse 6, Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? Well, we need to do a little bit of work and just understand what a vow is. Because Solomon in these verses, are, 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 is he's walking us through a failure to understand how our words matter before God. And so as I indicated just a few moments ago, vows were not something that were required. They were something that were optional. And here you have some instruction in regards to vows in Deuteronomy 23. Notice first the conditional word, if. If you make a vow, you shall not delay fulfilling it. They're not required. Numbers chapter 6 walks through the, the, uh, the way Nazarite vows were to be um, administered and, and in the, the rules and regulations for a Nazarite vow, but it's never said everybody has to do it or these people have to do it. Vows were optional. Now at this point, I, the, the Old Testament does not give us great clarity in regards to even the purposes for what vows were intended for. Because you can see vows in the Old Testament, such as a Nazarite vow, that had no conditional statement attached to it. And by that I mean, nobody was entering into a Nazarite vow, from what I can tell from the text, saying, God, I'm going to do this, so that you will do this. But there are other vows in the Old Testament where that's exactly what happens. In Genesis 28, there's a vow that Jacob makes for provision. God, if you provide for me in this way, then I will do this. Judges chapter 11, Jephthah makes a conditional vow. God, if you give me military conquest, then I will do this. You have the mother of Samuel making a conditional vow. God, if you give me a son, I will do this. So vows had a conditional element to them, certainly, but not all vows had conditional elements to them. Furthermore, in Numbers chapter 30, in regards to the regulations of vows, there's also included there oaths. And vows and oaths are put side by side together. When a man vows a vow or takes an oath, here's what's to happen. And so there's this idea of our words matter. Matter. And so I think one of the best ways for us to understand what Solomon's trying to communicate in Ecclesiastes 5 verses 4 to 7 is that our promises to God matter. What we say to him matters. It's very much similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, look, when you you take an oath, do not swear by all of this stuff. Just let your yes be yes, let your no be no, and leave it at that. Jesus never told them to not enter into agreements with people. He was teaching them and telling them, don't have all of this fancy language that gives you somehow a way out in a corrupt legal system that doesn't let you be a man or a woman of your word. Think about it this way. On the playground as we were kids, if you wanted to say something but didn't want to really do it, what would you do? Cross your fingers? you hide them behind your back. That person would walk away and be like, ha, ha, got him crossed. That's what Jesus is saying should not happen. And we shouldn't use a bunch of official terms and language to somehow communicate that we're good for it when we have no intention being good for it. Just say, yes, I'm good for it, or no, I'm not good for it. Just leave it at that. Solomon's saying the exact same thing should be true. In regards to what we have to say to God. Because there's a godness to God that should not be trifled with. And our promises to God should not be left unfulfilled. So what are some examples of vows, promises perhaps that should not be left unfulfilled? Well, one of the ones that immediately comes to mind is marriage vows. We even use the word vow there. And if we take the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and we place them into the context of marriage, it's better that you don't stand here and make promises to somebody that you have no intention on not fulfilling, regardless of the circumstances that at that point are most certainly unforeseen. And that's why our vows even have that language in them, for better, for worse, For rich, for poor, till death do we part, forsaking all others. And those are included. And long before that bride and groom stand before those in attendance and the individual officiating, at least as I approach that moment, there's been a lot of conversation and a lot of premarital counseling that has gone into You got to understand the significance of this. Your promises to God are not to be unfulfilled. Let's think about it maybe in a a way that doesn't have such serious human consequences. I mean, divorce has significant human consequences, but there's maybe another example that doesn't have as much significance in human consequences. The way Carrie and I approach our family budget is at the end of every year, we take a look at what the, uh, the churches has agreed to give us as a salary for the year coming, and we, we look at, all right, we break it all down, and I'm real nerdy, and I got a spreadsheet, and then she sits down, and I try to explain it to her, and, and we have this moment in our year, and we decide in that moment, what are we giving to the Lord each month? And from that point on, that is something we consider to be a promise made to God that is not to be unfulfilled. Now we've taken advantage of the church's online giving um, tools and so that just kind of comes out twice a month for us and it's taken off my shoulders the fact that I have to remember to write a check here, bring in the cash and stuff. So that's a great tool for us to just help us be consistent. But we're not going to decrease that number. The only direction the needle moves is increase when and where we feel the Lord is calling us to increase our giving for a particular need or cause or whatever it might be. But we consider that amount as we take a look at our annual budget and how we then we break it and divide it by 12 and go monthly and all that good stuff to be a promise that we are making to God that says that that's the number for 2017. And we're not going below it, we will only go above. Now Solomon is saying, it's better if you have a lower number than a higher number, as long as you're willing to fulfill the promise you made about the number. He doesn't tell us what the number should be, it's just he sounds. Look, it's better that you don't enter into the promise than enter the promise and be willing or unwilling to fulfill it. I mean, I think of what happened here just a couple weeks ago with Justin and Julie in regards to their baby dedication and the promises they made before the Lord and you to dedicate their marriage first and foremost to the Lord, and then to dedicate their kids to the Lord. Those are promises that have significance to them, and those words should not be left unfulfilled. So the second verb in these seven verses, the first was guard, the second verb in these seven verses is pay. How do we pay? Well, we pay simply by being a man or a woman of our word. And that shows up in verse four, pay what you vow. You make a promise to God, God, this is how much we're giving this year, this is how much we're giving this month. Okay, do it. You make a vow before the Lord till death do us part. You're my bride. I'm your husband. There you go. Do not leave those promises unfulfilled. It's exactly what Jesus said. You let your yes be yes. You let your no be no. Well, there's one last verb. I told you there was three verbs that are command verbs in these seven verses. And the last one shows up at the tail end of verse seven. But God is the one you should fear. And the verb there is fear. And it takes us back to this idea that the godness of God is not to be trifled with. And our promises to God are not to be left unfulfilled. That how we approach Him matters greatly as do our words. And it's better if we're just quiet and we let those words be few and we let those promises or those vows go unstated than to make them and be unwilling to fulfill them. Because there's a Godness to God that's not to be trifled with. And our promises to God matter Greatly let's pray. God help us to help us to grow in our understanding of who it is that you are that that you are most certainly gracious, you are most certainly loving, you are merciful but God you're also just and you're holy and you're righteous and you're perfect and and, and God help us to understand these things and, and, and get a, a a growing glimpse and a, a growing understanding of your Godness, your otherness. God help us to understand that, that our, our words matter. And they matter tremendously. So God, we thank you for loving us the way that you do, and the way that you have and how you have provided for us. And so we sing now just about who you are and your holiness. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing?